This is A Word, a podcast from Slate. I'm your host, Jason Johnson. Whether it's abortion, voting rights, or immigration, Texas is the state where the nation's toughest political battles are being fought right now. For rising Democratic stars Joaquin and Julian Castro, it's critical for their party. And it's home. Texas has always been a land of opportunity. Today, it represents America's tomorrow. It's young, it's diverse, it's growing. Coming up on A Word with me, Jason Johnson. Stay with us. Welcome to A Word, a podcast about race and politics and everything else. I'm your host, Jason Johnson. Texas politics is a rough business, and recent headlines prove that. The state has recently passed a highly restrictive voting law and an abortion law that invites citizens to spy, report, and sue others who are seeking the procedure. But despite a Republican lock on political power, Texas boasts an increasingly diverse population and many progressive leaders who are making an impact on the state and the nation. That includes twins Julian and Joaquin Castro. Julian served as mayor of San Antonio and HUD secretary before running for the Democratic nomination for president in 2020. And Joaquin Castro currently represents the 20th District of Texas in the U.S. Congress after many, many years as a state legislator. He's the chair of the Texas Democratic Caucus. The Castro brothers recently joined me as part of the Texas Tribune Festival to talk about the state and national politics and their political futures. And we'll be featuring that conversation on this week's episode. Um, Julian, you ran for president in 2020. You really, really championed issues like prisons and housing. And so here we are. We're eight months into the Biden administration. Where would you grade them on how they've addressed some of the things that you were passionate about when you were running in the primary last year? Well, I give President Biden high marks on taking care of business. And by that, I mean, like when he entered, you know, we had an economy that was still dragging very much. We had uh, a pandemic that was raging and is still ongoing. He's done the things he most needed to do, which is to get shots in people's arms and to focus on making sure our economy is good. And he's also put a spotlight on a lot of changes that we need to make on immigration and a number of other issues. There is still important unfinished business, whether we're talking about uh, the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act uh, or immigration reform that still needs to happen and hopefully will in this partially, at least in this reconciliation budget. Uh, So, you know, I give the administration high marks for a lot of what they focused on and have accomplished. And there's a world of difference between what Biden is doing and what Trump is doing and did uh, in terms of competence and everything else, heart and compassion and effectiveness. At the same time, you know, I I believe that we need to pursue a nation where everyone counts. And the fact is that too many people are still being left out in America. And so this Congress and the president have still a lot of work to do uh, to make sure that we get to an America where everyone counts. So, Joaquin, you have a different perspective. You're actually in Congress. Do you think the Biden administration is doing enough on things like pursuing the insurrectionists or more specifically in Texas, doing something about voting rights? Do you you think that there's enough urgency on the part of your colleagues all the way up to the administration? Uh, I guess let me start with the first one, the January 6th insurrection. You know, I especially early on, right, as the as the FBI started investigating they started arresting people. I thought that that what they were doing was too light, actually. 
Uh, I do feel like it's better and it's more extensive now. And now there's hundreds and hundreds of people that have been arrested and there's still these ongoing cases. Um, so in that sense, I think that it's gotten that, that the response has been more appropriate for what happened and for what the what the folks did, uh, the insurrections. And, and I think not only was it an insurrection, it was an attempted coup. Yes. These people were trying to stop the United States Congress from basically accepting that Joe Biden is the next president. Um, on voting rights, yeah, I mean, look, the president has made it clear that he supports uh, what is H.R. 1 and H.R. 4. Um, I do think that he's going to have to continue to really get in there and twist arms, so to speak. Mm-hmm. I don't know that that we let go of the filibuster. Well, let me let me jump a little. Let me go back a little bit. Mm-hmm. I know there's a compromise now in the Senate that Joe Manchin has led. It's kind of the Joe Manchin version of a Voting Rights Act. And if they can get 10 Republican votes for that, that'll be amazing. But you also we know that's also going to be very tough right. to make happen. So if they don't get those 10 votes, and I think they're going to give it a little bit of time to see if that's even possible. Mm-hmm. But I'm very skeptical, along with many others, that that's going to happen. And if it's going to be a matter of changing the filibuster to get voting rights done, that's where the president's really going to have to step in and use all of his powers of persuasion, uh, you know, LBJ style, right, from the 1960s, where he was able to work with Democratic senators and get them to go along with his agenda on civil rights, on voting rights, on Medicare, all of it. Uh, but it's going to be a real test for President Biden, I think, when we get to that moment, like probably shortly. I always thought it was very key when we looked at what Governor Abbott has been doing in Texas, that they attack voting rights first, they suppress the vote, and then they went after abortion rights in order to almost make sure that they wouldn't face the... Because if you went after abortion rights first, you may face consequences electorally you know, next year. What kinds of things are you hearing from advocates on the ground uh, about abortion rights? What kinds of, of stories are you hearing? And and, and I guess for a lot of us who aren't in Texas, we wonder about this. What are regular people in the street saying? I mean, like, you know, this is a law that's been in existence for essentially, I think, almost all of our lives. That's just been thrown out the window by a legislature without a tremendous groundswell of support. Well, they've, they've tossed away 50 years of legal precedent, 50 years of a uh, guaranteed right uh, for a person to have an abortion. There's a lot of fear out there, whether we're talking about activists who, of course, are still resolved to push back and, and to claw back this law uh, or everyday people out there that this right is being taken away. And what that means for the ability of uh, folks to control their own body, uh, that is cause of a lot of fear. We hear companies now uh, saying that they're having problems recruiting Mm-hmm. employees to Texas or keeping them in Texas. We hear companies saying that they're not going to consider relocating to Texas, even though they were before. Right. Uh, so not only is it causing a lot of fear uh, and it's affecting the ability of uh, women to control their own bodies, it's also hurting the Texas economy. Right. And that's becoming more and more clear. This SB8, the abortion legislation, is going to have a backlash, going to cause a real backlash on them. Uh, That's what I I hear out there. Joaquin, so some company that you're talking to, to try and negotiate to sort of bring to your district, to bring to Texas, they're calling you now saying, what the heck? We have people who want to leave now. We have people who don't want to transfer there. What do you tell companies as a member of Congress now 
when they're like, hey, we don't know if we want to come anymore. Are you like, hey, we got a plan on the books. We think Joe Biden's going to do it. Or are you just kind of telling them, you know, hold out? What 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 are you saying when you're getting these phone calls? Yeah, I mean, you're right. I mean, it's a combination of things. I mean, first, the federal response in trying to stop it, for stop SBA from fully taking effect. Uh, that's one part. But really, it, part of it is is a plea for in the long term for, for companies and people that have a different vision for the state's politics to actually stay in Texas and fight back mm-hmm. and stand up to this and fight back. Because in a sense, uh, these far right folks who have passed this law, they win if everybody that disagrees with it or many people that disagree with it stay away or some of them leave. Uh, for them, that's a twofer. Right. Because not only have they enacted their policies, but they've discouraged people from sticking around or from coming. Mm-hmm. That said, I think it's a reality that, you know, we saw Salesforce recently that said it was willing to relocate any of its Texas folks who wanted to leave mm-hmm. because of SBA. You know, you ask Julian about what the average person thinks. I just think the average person thinks that it's overkill. Right. Uh, you know, even the, the idea that if somebody rapes you and you're going to be made to have that person's child. Uh, I think most people think that that's right-wing overkill. We're going to take a short break. When we come back, more from Julian and Joaquin Castro at the Texas Tribune Festival. This is A Word with Jason Johnson. Stay tuned. This is Jason Johnson, host of A Word, Slate's podcast about race and politics and everything else. I want to take a moment to welcome our new listeners. If you've discovered a word and like what you hear, please subscribe, rate, and review wherever you listen to podcasts. And let us know what you think by writing us at a word at slate.com. Thank you. You're listening to A Word with Jason Johnson. Today, we're hearing from my conversation with Julian and Joaquin Castro for the Texas Tribune Festival. Julian, I want to go back to this because we talked about this uh, when I had you on the podcast about a month or so ago. You talked about how COVID is also contributing to another crisis that we're facing, this housing crisis. Can you talk a little bit about how that looks in Texas with COVID rates still rising and and people not having places to stay and no eviction moratoriums? Yeah, it's a perfect storm uh, for misery. Yeah, uh, Rising COVID rates, the uh, lapsing of the eviction moratorium, uh, also the cutoff of unemployment insurance. Now, the boost cutoff had happened for Texas some time ago, but many folks are losing their benefits overall. And so there are a lot of people either who have become homeless or living on the edge. Perhaps they're doubling up with you know family member or friends or people living in their car. And we had a rental affordability in this crisis well before this pandemic. Mm-hmm. We already saw in places big and small that rents were skyrocketing and they've started to do that again, Uh, especially because there's been this pent up demand of some landlords who feel like they weren't able to do what they wanted to over the last year and a half with their property and, you know, come hell or high water, basically they're going to free up that unit and jack up the rent. Mm -hmm. That's happening in place after place, including in Texas, you don't have rent control in Texas. Uh, You you don't have some of the guardrails that are in place in other places. Ultimately, the answer is that as a country, we need to get much more serious about truly investing in housing that's affordable to the middle class and to lower income people. Mm -hmm. There's a little bit of hope on the horizon. Uh, The reconciliation budget included over $300 billion of investment in affordable housing. That would be the biggest investment that we've made in generations. 
Mm-hmm. So, you know, that's a long-term solution. Um, in the meantime, states, need, including Texas, need to be as good as possible at enacting local or statewide eviction moratoriums where they can and making sure that uh, the rental assistance that Congress provided for, $47 billion, gets into the hands of renters and landlords that need it. You know, Joaquin, you did an op-ed in Variety talking about one of the reasons that we see such disconnects between the government and Latino community is the lack of effective and diverse representation of Latinos out of Hollywood. You, you mentioned statistics, you know, you only have about 5% of Latinos that ever get speaking roles. Half the times they're criminals or monsters or something else like that. And I, this is something that I'm very passionate about for all communities. So first, I want to sort of talk about this with both of you guys from a micro level. When it comes to programming, how do you guys find programming that you think is a positive representation of Latino people for, for your children? I mean, has, has that been something difficult for you before we even sort of talk about the larger Hollywood issue? Yeah, I mean, I think that they, you know, they, of course, watch like Dora the Explorer movie and the mm-hmm. cartoon and uh, and some of the children's shows, I think, over the years have gotten better about presenting a more diverse cast of characters. So that's good, mm-hmm. you know, but my kids for years were watching the things that I think everybody, Paw Patrol and, <laughs> and the different, you know, Disney um you know, Frozen and all the different Disney movies and so forth. So it's still a big challenge. And and you're right, Jason, like when we talk about this, when, anytime you mention Hollywood, people kind of think that's fluffy, right? It's not a hard issue like a healthcare or immigration or, you know, Medicare for all or some issue like that. But I actually think that this issue is a foundational issue for many communities, including the Latino community, because Hollywood Although there are competitors now like social media, mostly because of disinformation, Hollywood is still in the United States, the main image defining and narrative creating institution uh, about groups of people. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, I really started this work in earnest after what happened in El Paso, Texas in 2019, right. where you had a guy that drove 10 hours and killed 23 people because he said he considered them, quote, Hispanic invaders to Texas. And I thought about where does a guy like that, where does he get these ideas? And the more I looked at it and thought about it and researched it, you know, the more I I realized you had this very dangerous overlap between the traditional stereotypes of Latinos that have come out of media over the years and from Hollywood as lazy, as drug dealers, as illegal. And then the political world where you had people like Donald Trump and other politicians, even more now, that will abuse those stereotypes for their own political gain. And the reason that that they're able to do that in large part is because the Latino narrative in the United States is missing. There's a void there. Uh, And, you know, I remember last year I was on a Zoom call with a publisher of a top five publishing company in the country. And I asked him a really simple question. I asked him if he could name three Latinos or Latinas who had had a significant impact in American history. Mm-hmm. And the gentleman thought about it for a few seconds. And he finally said, uh, you know, no, uh, I can't. Wow. And these are like three historical figures of a guy that's a CEO of a textbook publishing company <laughs> for schools. And so to me, what that means is that there's a void in narrative that Americans, I th- I'm really convinced that Americans really don't know who Latinos are. Uh, and that void in narrative has become dangerous. 
And by the way, it's not just for the Latino community. It's been dangerous over the years for the African-American community, mm-hmm. especially the stereotyping. It's dangerous for the Muslim American community because over the years, especially after 9-11, too often when you see them on television or on film, they're cast as terrorists or as evil people. Right. Uh, the Asian-American community, I think, has been going through some of that as well, particularly on the political end because of all those hate crimes you know, because the president said that, you know, called it all those different viruses and so forth. You know, so there are many communities that are confronting this issue. And unless we change the institutions that that create the images and drive the narrative, um, then, you know, people are going to continue to be profiled in a dangerous way. And, and Julian, we'll want to get your thought on this too. I mean, look, you as, as a Latino man who's now in media, who's now in podcasting, how do you see that as also being sort of a problem and, and how issues of the Latino community are presented when so many are locked out, not just in Hollywood, but even in sort of media discussion? Yeah, I mean, and Joaquin's been so eloquent as he was a moment ago on these issues that who's shaping the narrative about a community matters. It matters that you're getting authentic uh, experience and stories that are shaping that narrative. And everybody brings a perspective to their work. So when we talk about news media, for instance, you know, it matters what kinds of stories somebody covers, the perspective that they bring to that coverage, uh, the judgment that they bring, the spotlight that they put on people's stories that might not otherwise be put or the nuance that they bring. Uh, And that's been mostly missing over the years for Latinas and Latinos in major American media, uh, including, you know, just take your pick. You know, I mean, somebody did this great thread on Twitter the other day. I say great, really depressing, actually, on the lack of uh, black and brown editors and writers at major magazines. Uh, But you could say the same thing for cable news. Uh, or as Joaquin said, for Hollywood film, or now for these new digital media, that needs to change. And these companies need to step up uh, and do a lot more. Because you and I both know that there are a lot of people out there with the very same talent and ability of a lot of people that have been lifted up. Yeah. <laughs> it ain't, a, it ain't a, a matter of people's talent and creativity and, you know, and ability. They have it. Mm-hmm. You know, black and brown folks, you know, throughout this landscape, but they haven't been given the opportunity to shine. They haven't been mentored. Uh, they haven't been retained. They haven't been promoted in the way that they should. And that needs to change. That was my interview with Julian and Joaquin Castro for the Texas Tribune Festival. For more on that event, go to tribfest.org. And that's a word for this week. The show's email is a word at slate.com. This episode was produced by Ayana Angel and Jasmine Ellis. Asha Salusha is the managing producer of podcasts at Slate. Gabriel Roth is Slate's editorial director for audio. Alicia Montgomery is the executive producer of podcasts at Slate. June Thomas is senior managing producer of the Slate Podcast Network. Our theme music was produced by Don Will. I'm Jason Johnson. Tune in next week for a word. Words.